when I started Outback, I was still flat broke. And I, I sold the saddle for gas money to get to Tampa. Mm-hmm. I arrived in Tampa with $37 and I had to live with one of my partners at his house for about six weeks, you know, until I could get enough cash. We put our money into it and borrowed some money from our uncle, fathers, brothers, whatever. We could, <laughs> and a lot of people turned us down. So I sold the saddle. We, we bought the saddle back about a year later and then we went public. Do not build a company to, to go public, build a great company. And then one day you will decide if you go public or not. We stand today. The business method the business with method. a shout out. The business method. The business method podcast. The business method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 123456789910 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
Listeners, I have a treat for you guys today. We have joining us on the podcast Tim Gannon and Chris Gannon. Tim is the one of the original co-founders of Outback Steakhouse. He's also the founder of The Bloomin' Onion, which is Outback's most popular appetizer that has sold over a billion dollars in product. And Tim is on the show with his son, Chris Gannon. Chris is the co-founder of Bolay Restaurants, one of the hottest new fast casual dining restaurants in Florida. They have 19 locations now and currently expanding and continuing to expand. And it's fascinating to listen to the father-son duo of these restaurateurs on the podcast and talk about this legacy that Tim has built for himself and his family and how, in, in many ways, Chris is following in the footsteps of Tim and being a restaurant entrepreneur and talking about the lessons that they learned throughout their life as entrepreneurs and the legacy that Chris is continuing to pursue through seeing his father as a young man grow and become a very, very successful entrepreneur. It's a fascinating story of the father and son entrepreneurial duo. And without further ado, let's welcome Tim and Chris Gannon to the show. The Business Method. Listeners, welcome to the Business Method podcast. I'm really excited about our guest today for a couple of reasons. One, we have Tim Gannon on the show, who is the founder of Outback Steakhouse and uh, many other restaurants, and his son, Chris Gannon, who's probably about similar age as me and is a successful entrepreneur, the co-founder with his father of Bolay Restaurants, which is Florida's hottest new restaurant concept for the fast and casual dining scene. And uh, we're going to chat with both of them. I'm uh, excited about this interview for a couple of reasons. I grew up with Outback, and so I've been there many times in my youth, not even a few minutes away from our house where I grew up. There's an Outback Steakhouse. And, uh, but also I love the dynamic between the father and son legacy of entrepreneurship. People say quite often, don't, don't get in business with your family. It's going to lead to bad things. And I always thought that was, I don't know. I just thought it was bad advice because I love, like I always, as an entrepreneur, I want to have kids and I want to have kids involved in the business and I want to have a wife involved in the business. And so the fact that you guys do this like the way that you've done, I think is absolutely fascinating. So we're going to talk about that. But Chris and, and Tim, how are you guys doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm doing great. And uh, just one little clarification. I, I was instead of I would love to have been the founder, but I'm the co-founder of Outback. I have two wonderful okay. partners, uh, Chris Sullivan and Bob Basham. And an interesting one little interesting story about that is in 1994, we were nominated to be Entrepreneur of the Year from Inc. Magazine. When they presented it to Chris Sullivan, he said, you have to give it the award to all three of us. And Inc. Magazine said, no, it's a singular entrepreneur. It's not entrepreneurs. We are the first people that, that they gave it to all three of us. They made a big exception for us. And, and that, that really goes to speak to the essence of our, our business philosophy today about partnership. Yeah, it's a, it's a team it's a team driven enterprise, right, to build a successful business. But you you so you guys started out back I don't know how many years ago was it? We started in 88, so 
Okay. Literally like 30, uh, 32 years ago. Okay. Uh, is when we started it in, in Tampa, Florida. I was just in Tampa at the original Outback, the one that had my name over the window as the proprietor and the actual store I, I ran as a managing partner. And it was a very interesting to go back, back in your history, to go back to the original store and brings all the stories back of the struggle of when we had very low sales and hoping to get to break even and, and then how we excitedly got a good write up and we went into a, a wait with people waiting outside and, and then how the whole outback started to grow uh, very organically, very quickly. Yeah. Where did the idea originally come from, Tim? Yeah. Chris Sullivan was my general manager when I was a trainee at Steak and Ale, 1974. Okay. So it goes way, way back to the Steak and Ale days. And when I was a trainee, we started a friendship there. And we followed that friendship all the way through our Steak and Ale days. I was transferred to New Orleans. And it's in New Orleans where I learned all about spices and food and flavors. And, and that's where I created the first concept of the Bloomin' Onion. And Chris used to come and visit, came to visit me in New Orleans during the Final Four basketball tournament one year. And he said, I love the work that you do. I love the food that you produce. Would you consider starting a partnership with my, my uh, other partner, Bob Basham? Would you consider joining us to start a new concept? And new concepts, I had done a couple of them before, mm -hmm. and they're scary. I mean, it's like opening a play on Broadway. You really don't know what you have until <laughs> people line up in line for you. But yeah. it, it's all guesswork, and it's all like hope and prayers, and it's actually scary. And especially because they flop, it's a, there's a lot to go to do to clean up a flop. Right. When something doesn't work and you have a you have a lease on a property that you have to figure out what you're going to do, it's 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 a painful exit. It's not clean. So uh, so all that was really through my mind. But on the other side, I always wanted to become a polo player. And I said this, if I'm going to get to the polo field, it's going to be with Chris Sullivan and Bob and, and doing uh, a concept where I have equity in the concept. And that's what they gave me was a, an equity just for my food knowledge. So that okay. was a, a really nice thing to do, an important thing to do. We went public in 1992, and then okay. I started playing polo as soon as we went public and I had some cash. So why is that why you waited until 92 to play polo? Because you needed yes. some cash. That <laughs> yeah, have... polo's a really expensive sport. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a, you know, a great story. I had a saddle that was given to me when I was 16. Mm -hmm. And it was given to me my, by my best friend's father. And he said, keep the saddle. You become a great polo player with the saddle. So I always hung on to the saddle. And then when I started to go to Outback, I was still flat broke. And I had to, I sold the saddle for gas money to get to Tampa. Mm -hmm. I arrived in Tampa with $37 and I had to live with one of my partners at his house for about six weeks until I could get enough cash. Cause we're all, you know, we're struggling. We're all struggling. Nobody yeah. had really huge deep pockets. They were doing much better than I did, but we had to borrow money for our first one. And it, I think 300,000 was the number that it cost our first one to renovate 
uh, a restaurant that had been uh, closed two other times. So we put our money into it and borrowed some money from our, you know, our uncle, fathers, brothers, whatever. <laughs> and a lot of people turned us down. Yeah. You know, there were some local doctors, you know, and doctors are always famous for making bad investments. And they t- turned down one of the great investments. Uh, <laughs> they regret so, that now, anyway, I'm sure. So I sold the saddle. We, we bought the saddle back about a year later. And then when we went public, then I could start playing polo. And in 92, I started within 10 years, uh, within really eight years, we had won five U.S. Opens. Wow. And Chris was on one of the winning teams when he was 17 years old. Did you guys uh, play on the same team? Uh, we, 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 we did. And we are proud. My proudest tournament was in Argentina. We played the Masters Cup together in a stadium that holds about 37,000 people. And Chris and I played together and won the Masters Cup. Oh, but how for cool. the U.S. Open, he won it with three other professionals. And my other times that I won it was with a different team. So he was he was on the team, but we never played the U.S. Open together. Normally, two sponsors or two amateurs don't play on the same team. Oh, that's amazing. So you guys are both world champion polo players. And, and I'd just like to ask, because this is, this is a, uh, an important part of your guys' story, maybe you can talk about the importance of polo and the lifestyle of a polo player and how that overlaps into, one, the family, but also the, the entrepreneur industry that you guys are a part of. I think the essence of polo is that it's the oldest team sport in the world. It's okay. 2000 years old. Oh, wow. It's, only, it's a, one of the original team sports that was created. And you use the reason I won is not that I'm a great polo player and I'm not relative to the people that were on my team, but I knew how to pick a team that could complement each other. And each person on the team had to fulfill a different role. Mm-hmm. Some were aggressive, and risk takers, other were quarterbacks, and then another team member was defense, all only defense. So each person had the, so you had a different personality, they had a different role to play, and if they did that role correctly, you complement, and they were different, the different sets of talents. And so that's what you have to do, is to find your weak area, and then surround yourself with people that have strengths in your weak area. Mm-hmm. So that's how you build your team. And, 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 and that's what works with Chris is that he knows now through Polo how to build a team. And Outback, Bob and myself, we were all different guys. I mean, I was totally different than Bob. Bob, very conservative. He's an operator, imaginative, and, and he's very astute in finance. You know, and what, what the next moves are to go public, whatever. And I was purely food, spices and flavors and aroma, all of that. So I think we all added something quite different. We were all very different guys. And Chris was by my side throughout all the outback, the openings. And he would be stuck in some of the restaurants when I'd have to go in. And take, he'd have to take a nap on one of the benches. It was I was a single father. And, and kind of dragging my son to visit. I had no choice. We'd go stay at Holiday Inns during openings and trying to figure out how you can have fun at Holiday Inn. And we figured all that out. So Chris kind of came up in the restaurant business, you know, through his teenage years and 
watched me give the speeches. And now when I look at Chris and I see he does a far better job on inspiring people. He has a natural charisma that's evident. He's a good listener. And I think that's the number one quality of a great leader is to be a listener. I think humility and listening are such important skills, so important in today's world to be empathetic with your employees, the plight of the, plight of the employee, what mm-hmm. they struggle through, all of our people at these not great wages, but in, in the challenges of how to make those wages, make a life. Chris, why don't you, why don't you tell how Bolay started and how, and how, how that sort of came about? I think that's a fascinating story. I want to get to that real quick, Chris. But first, before we do, I'd like to ask you, your dad was complimenting you on your your quality of humility. And this is something that I respect a lot and study a lot to to be humble is such a powerful thing. So where do you think that came for you? Where did you get those traits? Is it something that you were naturally born with? I know one thing that kind of makes me humble is I'm like always working on another project and I'm so focused on the next project that I just don't talk about my past quite often. And I'm just like building, 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 and, and, and always going towards whatever that next mountain to climb is that I don't think about my past. So I'm curious if it's similar to you. Yeah, I would, Chris, I would say hundred percent. I'm not a great storyteller. I've realized that I wish I could be better. I'm always that guy that, you know, around the, the fire, I'm not that great to retell I have such incredible stories where my dad can tell you about the the chocolate, the way it tasted, or uh, the stars and the color and the, the everything about that moment and bring you to that moment like he's creating a book. And and I would say that too. It's to a flaw. I'm I'm constantly focused on the next thing, you know, mm-hmm. or very objective. Okay, if I even if I'm flying, okay, I got to get to the airport this time. I just I need to slow down sometimes and just be in the moment. And, and good, bad, or ugly. I mean, it's like. I remember reading Michael Jordan's book. As soon as he won the game, he allowed himself 24 hours to to, to be happy, and then that was it. Boom, next game. Or he <laughs> was even talking the about the thing. next game while he was in the locker room of the game he was just in. And I think that's kind of what I am. And uh, and you know, I'm not Michael Jordan by any means, but I, I admire that that focus on build, build, build the next thing. You know, but you, you got to make sure you don't let life pass you by either, and enjoy the current moment and live in the stories. And, and the other thing I've just, a lot of people think that we were brought up on the silver spoon where there was a moment where dad did very well in life and we got to go do really wonderful things. But there was also a big chapter early on in our, our my, my life where we didn't have much. I grew up in New Orleans, very, very poor, never, you know, really missed a meal per se. But other than that, you know, public schools, New Orleans system and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it, it's wonderful to have that because I remember that. I remember coming home at night and macaroni and cheese was our only thing to eat for dinner. And you don't let go of that. So you don't, I guess, never want to go back to that either. So I guess we'll keep working harder. That's a motivating drive. What For you, what was the importance of polo as a young man, as a young boy growing up? Like, what did you see uh, in the, the arenas when your father was playing and practicing? And why did it become important to you? I, I think for me, what I saw was just the dedication. Dad was always so good at building teams. And you, obviously you win by putting the best people on the field to go talk. We talk about that with win. It's in one of our core values now. And, and my dad was so great at 
putting these wonderful teams together. Memo Gracita was the best 16 U.S. Open champions. Adolfo Cambiaso, the next greatest, he's the Tiger Woods of polo. And when you're around that excellence, it's like being around Hort Schultz or, or, or Jeff Bezos, any of these guys that are the, the, the top of their game. And that's what I was around. And yes, it was in polo, but it was the same thing. You're, you're winning, whether you're winning in the business arena or you're winning on an athletic field, you're still competing against other people and, and building a team because everything, I think business is a team sport through and through. And, uh, and so when you build a great team, you can go win. And, and you also have to really find out who's good or who's bad to complement a team. Fill in your weaknesses with other people's strengths and so on and so forth. I, I would imagine, I know nothing about polo guys other than you guys, you play it on a horse, right? And I would think it'd be a fascinating network of people to be a part of. Could you guys talk about maybe what there was some connections you made through polo or some of the people that you met through polo that, that helped either launch your career, expand your careers or business or just the people you meet in that environment. I can take that one real quick and I'll let dad elaborate. Mm -hmm. For me, Winston Churchill said it best. If you have a handicap in polo, which is your rating, like a golf handicap, you have a passport to the world. And he meant that because you're on the field with, uh, look at my dad who's played against the Sultan of Brunei. We both played against Prince William, Harry, and uh, and Charles. And and just the Maharit of Dalit dad tell you all the people he's played against the world. But, you know, for me, you don't do business on the polo field. I thought that as a young polo player, I'm going to be around all these CEOs and they're going to give me a job. You learn real quickly that they don't give you a job because they realize you're not a business person at that moment. Right. It was, it was a hard lesson. I have a lot of young polo players coming to me and I'm like, Hey guys, you gotta, yeah, I want to come work in a restaurant. I'll give you that intro, but you're not going to just get to be CEO. And I learned right. that lesson. But the one thing that I took from it was, it was the motivation. I remember going to the polo field and it was exciting to go play polo. But as soon as the game was over, you're like, okay, now what, you know, it was just for this fun versus these other, the sponsors that were coming to the polo field, they were coming in their suit, quickly changing out their suit to put their polo jersey on. They were talking about the deal they just landed or the investment they're going to make or the negotiation they just went through. And that excitement spearheaded me. I actually quit polo and went back to school to finish out my degree because I was so inspired by these business guys and, and what they were doing versus for me, just playing polo all day. How about you, Tim? Um, I'm sitting in this room here and uh, I'll show you one photo that is, I think it's a smile that I hope I can remember how to do the rest of my life. This is me after a championship as uh -huh. Tommy Lee Jones on my right. And we're laughing about a great moment on the field where he knocked me off my horse and I was dragged on the stirrups all the way down the field uh -huh. and we we're just laughing about the great moment. And I think Chris says it right. I said, I think you got to go be successful and then go play polo. You can't go try and be a polo player and, and hope to find success in that world. You've yeah. got to find success first. And then you celebrate that success in the polo world. you you never, I don't ever remember talking history of films or what film Tommy's work on. No one likes to do that. Polo was an escape for everybody to get away from business, you know, to go on that polo field and forget about, you know, we played with the Budweiser, the Bush brothers from Budweiser. They mm -hmm. don't ever want to talk about the Budweiser sales or, or any of that, or 
all the different interesting people that play. Uh, and that's what makes the camaraderie, the spirit of partnership so strong in polo because you're, everyone's the same. We're all polo players. We're not actors or beer makers or steak, steak guys. We're all polo players. We're on the same level. Even, I mean, it's strange to think of that you're on the same level with Prince Charles, who's the future king of England, but or the Maharaji of Jaipur. But in a sense, you are. In a sense, you can talk about your horses and how the game went and how the struggle for polo and riding is the same for me as it is for Prince William. So it, it's an equalizer. And I think you don't go to the polo field and, and, and hope to get a great job. Polo is about celebrating your life's victories that you've already done. And people who get into polo and don't have that success, they get into trouble because they're, they're always trying to play polo when they should be trying to build their career. <laughs> and you got to figure that out. So I'm glad Chris took a break from polo, went back to Florida State, got his degree. This is after it already won the U.S. Open and had the taste and the adrenaline of polo, that, that excitement. And it's hard to walk away from that. And then came back and then got stayed in the in the business world. And then he came and said, "Let's let's do a restaurant on our own, Dad." And I was I said, "I'm all in on that." I said, "That's what I love doing." I said, "Chris, though you we never know how how it's going to work, but let's give it a try." Mm-hmm. And and I think the joy of having a family business, and I I, I adore. I don't like, I adore working uh, with Chris and, and enjoy it and enjoy watching him succeed. And that's the trickiest part of a guy like me that's had success is how to transfer success to your son. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, it, and it has to be something he earns himself. You can't give it to him. He's got to want it. And, and Chris, Chris, thank God, has got desire even though he came from most of his upbringing was in a pretty affluent lifestyle going on Nassau and yachts and, and Argentina and playing with me and doing all that. And he had to walk away from all of that mm-hmm. and then get humble, go to work, get into the, into the restaurants and do the hard work of figuring that out. And then to create something, to create a whole new restaurant company. You know, I will tell you it's, Bolay was 75% Chris from the beginning. You know, I helped and st- steered the food a little bit, but it was him that put the manuals together, the, the staff together, hired the employees, trained the employees, figured out the systems for a, whole, a concept I had never worked on before was this fast casual concept. It's a whole new genre of restaurants. Chris, there's a, there's a lot of people that come from uh, wealthy families and don't have the drive to to build something. They'll they'll have money and they'll be okay with the money that they have and they just live their life as it is. And it sounds like you did have a bit of your life when you were younger as a poor guy, as a poor young man, poor boy, uh, in a poor family. But then that shifted. Uh, was that is that the drive that keeps you going nowadays and in wanting to build more or build more? Or do you think it's inherited in you that you got from your dad? Or what do you think that is that, that makes you want to, to build and to earn your own success? 
I think it's, it's great questions, very fat, uh, multifaceted. I look back at my youth and early stage, you didn't know you're poor because you were just happy. We had love. Yeah. We had a great mom, a great dad. And, uh, you don't know, okay. I didn't get the name brand roller skates, but I got roller skates and, uh, you just don't really realize it. And now obviously to be successful is important, but there's many times, not many, but where I'm not even sure how much money we're making. It's the drive to win. And I prom- and I think that's really it is to go find that next great site or go find that next great leader of one of our restaurants or that next, I mean, I was out the other day driving around looking for hourly team members. Cause that's just, I got a rush. I don't know. It's just fun going after people and building that team. And they say you get to a certain X amount of dollars a month where none of it makes matters anymore. Cause it really doesn't influence your life either way. Uh, definitely not there yet. We're still in the grind, mm-hmm. but, but that just desire to win. And, and, and I think now too, Bole is kind of just overnight grown into this organization. We have almost a thousand people working with us. And, um, and I say with, I never say for, they work with us as a team, the responsibility to provide something perfect for them. It's far outweighs me anymore. Now it's really, what can I do to provide for them? And when you take care of them, we get taken care of. So first and foremost is how do we become the best uh, place for our team to work and thrive and grow and, and find success out there. But I think, you know, in business, I think some people are okay with second place, but, but first place is first place is who you remember. You don't remember who came in second, the Daytona 500 last year <laughs> or the second in, in the NFL. You remember who won. I think that's something that's deep inside of our, uh, our DNA is just the desire to win. So Tim, you took Outback and you grew, you guys took Outback, you grew it to 1400 locations. You then created, I guess you could call umbrella restaurants underneath that with Carabas and Bonefish and Roy's restaurant and Fleming's Prime Steakhouse. So, and then just created an amazing billion dollar corporation there, went public. And so Chris, I would, I would, I want to ask you, what is what is first place for you? What is winning? Do you want to go public with Bolays and create an umbrella of companies underneath uh, uh, the Bolay Empire? That is the, the the magic question, I guess, if you will. And I'm, I really study my dad and how much fun he had and the, and the success they had when they went public. And I also remember he told me one time when he went public, you're now it's a different game. You have quarterly earnings calls. You can't mess up. You're scrutinized. You're this and that we own the company 100%. And when you own a company 100%, is that more important than money? I don't know yet. I think it's a little too early in the game to decide that. We're, we're one of my best friends also, who ironically just went public with his company this year and is a great mentor of mine. He always said, Chris, do not build a company to, to go public. Build a great company. And then one day you will decide if you go public or not. Mm-hmm. The moment you just start thinking about the company public is the moment you just start running the company from numbers perspective. And I've mm-hmm. seen it, it can happen so quickly versus staying true to the quality of the food, the quality of your team, making right business decisions. I mean, cause you, you go too fast, you start making two things really poorly. I think is real estate decisions and people decisions. And those are the two most important things that yeah. we need to do right now because the, the menu and the food and all that and the systems and process, that's all evolving and we're going to constantly tweak that. But it's now how do we go build a great team and how do we uh, go find that next great location? And, and so if you're, if you're thinking about going public, do you take your eye off that ball? Maybe. And so and, and we're, we're having a lot of fun. 
I mean, we're really truly having fun at what we're doing right now. And, uh, and I got two young kids and trying to also balance that being there for them. So I have all these different things that are pulling and you just got to decide that, that perfect balance, but, uh, yeah, having a lot of just, we're just having a blast doing what we're doing. And that's the cool part. But even navigating last year, I mean, even last year, there was some dark, dark moments, but look back and kind of gave us our, uh, a stronger suit of armor, if you will. Yeah. I was an early entrepreneur in the 08 recession in Phoenix, Arizona and, and in the real estate business too. And we got smashed, but I, I learned some of the best financial uh, lessons of my life, financial and life lessons. And, and this whole business thing is just, uh, it's just a little, it's important, but it's a little game compared to the important things of life and uh, going through a recession and surviving you, you really learn that. Tim, in the early days, did you guys have those same goals as, as Chris did? Did you did you eventually want you know, to go public or was yeah, it just for, for us it was a different time? Uh-huh. It was right after 1987. And if you can remember back then, that was the Michael Milken junk bond days when the, there was so much money going around and overnight it dried up. Uh-huh. Overnight, where the banking sort of collapsed and loans were money was impossible to get a hold of. We sold 20% of our company for $1.8 million back in the early days, just to get a hold of money. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's much different than today. I mean, there's options of family offices coming in and, and supporting you. And, you know, once you go public, you, you lose so much control of your company. It's very hard to maintain that control. Uh, the Outback founders right now have very little to do uh, with the running of the Outback business. And, you know, it's gone through, gone public, gone private, gone public again. It's, it's gone public three times. Mm-hmm. So I know all about it. And I think anybody that starts a company and loves their company, like we loved Outback, it was magical. Outback was, had lines, two-hour lines for people to get in, to, to get into the restaurant at, for a long period of time. And people still love when you say, I, the founder of Outback had created the Bloom and the Onion. They still like, oh, my God. And they all have all kinds of stories of how they worked there through college and they celebrated their birthdays there. And it was a really part of a lot of people's lives. You know, talking to Norman Breaker, who started Steak and Ale, he wished he had never sold steak and ale, you know, and he sold it to Pillsbury and, you know, they took it over and they made it whatever they wanted to. And so it lost that founder's touch. And so that's the risk of going public is that you've got to be willing to know that you're letting go of the reins to other people that are going to be a board. There's going to be a board um, uh, of trustees on that. They're going to help you make decisions. And if you lose the governing board shares or the uh, percentage, then they can overrule you and change things for financial or for whatever reasons. And so I'm begging Chris. I said, I think people's dreams in life are to be your own master, mm-hmm. you know, the master of your own fate. And I think we all, you talk to anybody who has run a public company and says, what would you like to do? I'd like to start my own little company and just wake up in the morning and 
know that this is my company and not have to report to anybody. Now, there are other reasons that could be, like if you really think this brand needs to be international in a multi-billion dollar company, mm-hmm. you may be, that may be a good option because the amount of liquidity that can come your way is incredible. But you're changing the nature. You're going to have to perform quarter by quarter every quarter. You're under scrutiny. So it's it's a really tough situation. It's a tough decision because it's tempting. It's like, here, take a bite of the apple and see, <laughs> see, see, see what paradise is like. Well, I've been there, and paradise is when you're your own company and you're running it the way you see fit and you're in charge and you can walk in and say, I started this. I can go into an outback and say, I started it. I'm the co-founder, but you can't walk in the office and never influence the, the corporate office anymore. So I, it's a tough thing. I, I think I had fun being a public company, you know, ringing the bell at wall street mm-hmm. on New York stock exchange, nothing, nothing sweeter than that. And we rang it. I rang it three times. We did a NASDAQ twice and on New York. You know, those are huge moments yeah. uh, for a businessman is to, to go in front of the entire Wall Street and say, here you go. You're going to love us. So, but I, 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 it'll be a sad day when I hear Bolay's going public. It'll be sad and worrisome uh, on one side and exciting on the other side. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it, it's a very complex a question uh, and the, the future is dubious. And I think most people will say that today that running a public companies, especially with the amount of regulation that's on top of, and, and it's going to become worse. You know, the amount of regulation that, that comes on public companies is just going to get tougher and tougher. Chris, does that make you want to stay away from going public when you hear your dad talk about it like that? Well, yeah, and that's kind of why it's, well, A, we're, we're nowhere near that size or scale to, to do. But I admire the public companies are wonderful, but really you look at the great companies are the ones that somehow just took their time. Nobody just has the patience anymore to build a company, a great company over a, a long period of time. Everybody wants that right out of the gate. And if you have a little bit longer horizon, you can you get over that hump and you don't need that public money. You got plenty of cash flow to grow. When you look at Panda Express, it'll build 200 restaurants a year this year. You know, an Outback, I think at its, at its height, will build 150. 200 restaurants a year, it just takes a little bit longer to get there. But once you get there, the business has enough cash flow internally that you don't need that external cash flow. You just got to be patient to get to that moment. And that's yeah. what I think we are and a little younger so. How long did it take Panda Express to get to that point? I mean, they're a 30 year old company now. So, I mean, Outback's 32 years old. So, you know, one's doing, I think, I don't know, I think they're worth like 8 billion and one's worth 4 billion. Tim, do you think you, looking back, do you think you would not go public uh, if you could do it all over again and just take the time to build it the way kind of Panda Express did? Yeah, I mean, I would have been happy to own like five or six or 10 Outbacks, just my own and run them, you know, how much joy you go in and you're the owner. I don't know. The atmosphere of a public company is just so different. The CEOs have such authority to to make so many changes. 
Mm-hmm. The problem that I see with public companies, they get a CEO in there that from another industry, right? And they come into the restaurant industry and they think they know everything. They think, that, listen, this is what we're going to do and it's going to work. Yeah. They don't consult with people. They don't listen to other people. They just arbitrarily because they have that power. And that power is from a, a public company. CEOs are given so much power in a public company. It's where, you know, family-run businesses, I can call, hey, Chris, uh, have you thought about this? Why don't you rethink this side and, and whatever? So he, he's got that. But if Bole was sold and there was another CEO that came in, the guy means to say, hey, Mr. Gannon, you're great, but I got this. And that's kind of what happens is they don't want to listen to founders because of the amount of power they have and they don't need to. And that's, that's, what's kind of scary about going public, but at the same time, ringing the bell, having the liquidity, having unlimited gunpowder to grow your brand. How old is Belay now, Chris? Five years. We're starting 16, 2016. Okay. In two weeks, you'll have 19 stores in five years, which is pretty fascinating. That's a great, that's amazing growth, actually. What's your growth plan for, just say, the next five years for Belay? We kind of mapped it out, and, and, um, you know, obviously, it's always good to have some goals. I think within, I want to say six years, because five years is difficult, but on year six years from now, we should be, if if we all goes to plan, at 100 locations Mm -hmm. in five or six states. And I think that's that's doable, barring that we're going in two new states next year. So that's really mm-hmm. going to stretch us a little bit and, and show what we're made out of. But then when you're in those two states, you have a, a wonderful launching platform to grow other states. And I think that's kind of, obviously, our decisions have to be made in a 12 to 24 month forward thinking cycle because mm-hmm. of the ramp up and signing leases and getting your people and your systems and processes in place. So it's a little difficult, but, uh, but you know, the beauty of it too, is I also do have the blueprint. I, I got to grow up around watching my father and how they did multi-unit area locations and food techs and uh, purchasing and procurement. And, and I will tell you, Chris, one of the, I told this to my, uh, the other day, the, one of the most beautiful things that we have, or I have, or Bole has going for us is that it was co-founded by my father, Tim Gannon and him and he and his partners did such a great job in the industry that their name is so positive and profound. So that way, when we do talk to landlords or we go talk to every vendor, as you know, it's a small world, we're dealing with a lot of the same vendors, but now I'm dealing with their son. Mm-hmm. And so their, their father said, Hey, deal with Chris. I had a great relationship with Tim Gannon. We built a wonderful billion million dollar business relationship together. And so I get to ride on those coattails of, of good business ethics and, and good business practices and a great name out there. And so, like I said, it's, that alone has been an incredible asset for us talking to landlords, recruiting new leaders, whatever it may be, all of our vendor partners that we deal with. It's been, it's been wonderful. Tim, you started out with a, I think you said a loan for the first outback of around 300,000. I'm curious, what, what was the first amount you needed for the first belay, Chris? So we probably spent $2 million to build the first Bolay. And that's half of that is we had to put a letter of credit down. It's just a different world. You know, we, yeah. we wanted a main and main site. Dad, when he did his, did it in a, 
uh, a corner site in the middle of uh, a neighborhood that wasn't supposed to do well in Tampa, South Tampa. We did Bole on Main and Main where we weren't a name. And I remember like it was yesterday, the landlord said, we're vying for a couple other sites. We're trying to fight against the big name brands with these big corporate guarantees. And that's what these landlords want. They want these corporate guarantees. So we had to tie a lot of our money up in a letter of credit. And I remember the landlord said, well, Chris, what's the name of your concept? I said, I don't have that yet. Um, it's, it's still a work in progress, but I promise you, and I looked him in the eyes, I promise you we won't fail. We know what we're doing and we're going to, we're going to put in everything we have all in. My wife was pregnant with our first baby there mm-hmm. and we're hanging the pictures up at the wee hours of the night in the building. And just that, that perfect story. We, we had created some of the original recipes and we, were, we started out doing juices and we, we did all those juices in my garage, learning mm-hmm. how to make a juice, you know, from the, with the machine spraying and in the ceiling, just all kinds of fun stories and using every marketing tactic I knew, breaking every little bending every little law we could to, to, from a marketing perspective, when we went and opened, we had a line out the door the first day and, um, and never looked back. And then dad said, Hey, Chris, let's talk to this landlord. There's another site. And sure as heck in eight months, we had our second restaurant open. So everybody's like, Hey, what was your business plan? And, and the business plan was to, to not fail. Simple. <laughs> that was it. Like, don't, it's a great don't business fail. Plan. And, and, and we didn't. And it was just, it was that and, and open one great restaurant at a time. And we stayed yeah. true to that. And we still talk about it. Hey, well, how many restaurants you want to open up? And to be honest with you, Chris, it's, it's the next one we're focusing on is open that one up perfectly. And then once we're done with that one, you open the next one up perfectly. And if you just keep doing that cadence, I think we'll be successful. You talked about learning great business ethics from your dad, and this is something I think about quite often. Tim, Tim, I'm curious, was there ever a time, I'm sure there was, could you tell us about a time that your your the boundaries of your business ethics may have been pushed uh, and you had to push back to make sure that you could keep your, your solid reputation as an entrepreneur and a businessman? Yeah, I, th- I think when it came to making decisions, about the menu uh, in doing the right thing, upholding the standards of ingredients, we were pushed to having to lower food costs in order to preserve our margins. And when I'm sitting there looking, do I make this call? Do I make that call? Do I change from pure butter to this artificial whipped butter? All of those things, you know, you're looking right at and just saying, I know what I should do but can I do it in this environment mm-hmm. and can we pull it off and still be true to ourselves? That was 08. 08 was very challenging for everybody. A very dark moment in the entire, in the entire world, in the entire United States. And we almost went bankrupt during that period of time. So mm-hmm. uh, we survived it by saying true, true. You know, I remember there was another time we had some a bacteria that was out in some of the boxes of the steaks. And I had to make a call to shut down a meat company right in the middle of their production and shut mm-hmm. the entire, you know, thing down because of this bacteria. And it was difficult because they were a great meat guy have been a great supplier to us. You know, it's something that I was, if I didn't do it, I would risk, you know, the health of, of our customers. And so, you know, those were very challenging moments in my career that I had to do the right thing. Very difficult because we really didn't have another meat company that could, that could pick up the slack. So we had to 
do go back to one of our companies and just say, you're going to have to hire overtime. You're going to have to work three shifts. You're going to have to do this to get us through this. And it was very, very challenging because the easy thing would is just like, let a few people get sick. You don't know how many, and let's fix, fix this bacteria at, with time and kind of like overlook it. And we didn't, you know, we, we did the hard, hard deal, but it was, I, I remember those were really, really difficult, difficult times to shut down a meat plant and not know how you're going to keep up with supply. Like, not sure what, what's ahead of us, but we know that we have to do this. Outback was a great company. The ethics were really solid. We treated our people right, never lied to people. We, we gave them a compensation plan that stayed true for so many years of equity partnerships and they put, wrote a check for 25,000 and they got 10% of cash flow and an equity position in their restaurant. It was, we, that's what really why we got entrepreneur of the year. It's a game people play there's winners and losers and mm-hmm. you want to win and you got to work hard though to win. You're always having to figure out the next move mm-hmm. and you have to do that. You have to, you can never be um, content with today. You have to be like, whatever we do today, we can do it better tomorrow. Chris, your dad complimented you earlier on the interview about the traits he admires about you. What are some of the the traits um, that he has that you really admire? His incredible commitment to to quality and uh, and, and to great flavors and great food and building great teams. Like I, I watched dad on and off the field. And I remember vividly going into his early meetings at Outback and uh, when he went to the food tastings and I, and he didn't know, but I was filming him. I grabbed out my little phone. There's like flip phones and I was filming him. And I just, cause I was just like, wow, I knew dad is my dad, but I watched him in his, his setting when the whole team was just encapsulated by what he was going to say next. And, and it wasn't necessarily what he was going to say next, but it was the questions he asked the team. And it was the inspiration he gave to them. Cause I remember he would do that and he would be out. And the whole team would go back there and they start doing all this stuff. And I'm like, man, he knows how to work that room really well. And so that was kind of cool to, to, to grow up watching that. And, and I remember that. And I remember you don't always tell people what to do, but you just give them the idea and you let it kind of start blossoming with inside their head and become their own idea. And so I think it was just the desire to win. Him and I still play golf and tennis against each other. And they, we still get some good heated matches. And uh, I know the teams may or may not always be stacked in someone's favor, but uh his desire to win is still there and it's, it's awesome and, and it's inspiring. And uh, it all comes down to like, it's a sport and you win, you win a sport by building winning teams. Chris, uh, I want to ask you as a professional athlete and successful entrepreneur, what are, what are a couple of your most important high performance tips that you would give the listeners? Hmm. Prepare, 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 practice, you know, have the knowledge, use your gut. Don't get out there on the field if you're not ready. I, I know there was a couple of times I got in business and I thought I was ready. You know, I hear so many of these young kids in college and they want to be entrepreneurs and this and that. And it's, and it's so cool. And I'm like, be careful. Don't just run and jump and go be an entrepreneur. Go out there. I mean, I worked in many different restaurants. I fine dining to fast food to casual dining. And then I also went and worked in marketing. And so I took all of those things and then I went and created Bolay with dad. But 
I didn't just go start a restaurant right out of college. Some people can do it. Mark Zuckerberg can do it. But there's some people that just have that innate boom, get lucky, knock it out of the park. But for me, it was build that 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 knowledge base up. And, and that comes to preparation. You can't go win the U.S. Open in polo if you don't prepare the horses and yourself and the team to go win the next day. And, and, and always have your eye out for that next great horse or that next great restaurant leader because that's how you're going to win. Nice. Tim, that same question to you as a successful polo player, champion, and entrepreneur. What are some of your most important high-performance tips? A lot of people don't think this is really important or overlook it, and they don't dive deep in it. But I think the most important thing a true leader can do is to understand your weakness. Uh, what is that? What is where are you weak? And a lot of people, oh, I'm not, I, I don't know what my weakness is. You know, they don't, they won't focus on it. And until you focus on what your weakness is, you can never build your team, your team around you. That is so important. And, and if you want to know what your weakness is, go ask your parents. They usually know <laughs> what your weakness is. When I was 17 years old, and I was parking cars at the Mai Kai restaurant in Fort Lauderdale uh, till two o'clock in the morning on school nights, which I should not have been doing. And I, you know, I wanted to be a polo player, parking cars, in, which is a big stretch from making a dollar ninety-five an hour back then it was minimum mm-hmm. wage. And my mother said, "It's my job to tell you what your Achilles' heel is." My mother told me my Achilles' heel was that I was optimistic to a fault. And you have to think about that for a minute. Uh, She was a very bright woman and she knew me well, but here I am trying to park cars, see student, and I wanna play polo. Like Chris says, you're not gonna get, make your money first. Don't try and get to the polo field before you establish yourself as a successful person. Mm -hmm. And so, here I am, optimistic to a fault. Well, I want to build, I want. I wanted a restaurant in every city in the world at one point. People said, well, God, did you ever, did you ever think you were going to have 1,400 restaurants in 28 countries, 17 languages? I said, hell yes, I did. I wonder why we don't have more. I was like shocked that we didn't continue to be an 8 billion, a 16 billion, a whatever kind of company is what I, what I, you know, was hoping for. And, but that's me. I was always optimistic to a fault. And the fault is that if you stay optimistic without knowing what your, what your weak spot is, it's going to be a fault. It's going to be a problem. And so once you know that I put myself and surrounded myself with Chris Sullivan, who's not optimistic to a fault, Bob Ashton, they're realists. They're stone cold, hardcore. They wanted to open four outbacks, mm-hmm. you know, in two years. That was their goal. They wanted them to do $2 million a piece and make a quarter of a million dollars. And, and I'm like, that's so boring. But <laughs> it was with that conservative uh, niche that I, I went into that, the wheel, and mine was full of passion and, and let's do it and let's go for it. And, uh, pushed the wheel going and it was their conservative that kept the wheel together, mm-hmm. that kept the wheel oiled. 
that, that worried about if we hit a bump that we're going to slow down. So I, I think you got to know your weakness. Uh, and once you do, and you really have to focus on it, say, okay, it's not bad to have a weakness because once you understand what your weakness is, believe it or not, it then becomes your strength. Mm-hmm. You're going to turn your headwind into a tailwind because you've identified what your weakness is. So I think preparation and knowing your weakness are the two strongest points of being a winner. Good point. Good point. Okay, Chris and Tim, I think I'm going to wrap the call up there. I want to thank you both so much for coming on the show and sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. Chris, I wish you the most success with Bolay. Tim, I wish you the most success with uh, watching Chris grow and advising him along the way. And uh, thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate thank you. having you on the Thanks, show. Thanks, Chris. It's been, it's been very enjoyable. Thank you, Chris. That was a great, great show. Listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And... We'll see you all on the next episode.